Welcome to the Neanderthal Mind, bringing you riveting, educational, humorous, and sometimes serious perspectives on our Neanderthal mind. We dive deep into why what our Neanderthal ancestors did to survive still has a profound effect on our modern mind. Take a journey with us as we roll back the clock millions of years. All right, my fellow cave dwellers, if you're ready, let's get this wheel rolling. Now here's your host and the leader of the pack, Anthony Yokolano. Welcome back, cave dwellers. I'm sure you have been wildly anticipating this next episode. Part two of my conversation with Rebecca Rag Sykes. Rebecca is the author of a number one selling, critically acclaimed book titled Kindred, Neanderthal Life, Love, Death, and Art. In this second episode with Rebecca, we go deeper into the origin of the name Neanderthal, a name that if it didn't exist, this podcast would not exist, at least in this context, I guess. Serendipity, maybe. Fate, possibly. Reality, obviously, definitely. We go a little deeper into the history of Neanderthals and the important discoveries that have thrust the Neanderthal life into the limelight. As always, I like to ask the experts who their influencers are and where and what knowledge they are indulging on and where from, which we go into. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. I'll see you on the flip side, cave dwellers. So much knowledge, I, I appreciate that. No, so, no, no, <laughs> I no, no, I, I'm I absolutely appreciate that. I, I love that when I you know can get someone talking about you know that information again because I'm just coming I'm coming into it with really no knowledge at all about Neanderthals. Um, but the, you know, you had mentioned the, the Nisavans, and it's it's just amazing that it was just a I don't even know what size it was, but just to be the size of a what one bone out of a finger and they were they were able to uh you know extract all of this information from them it's just amazing what technology can do now oh yeah genetics is absolutely mind-blowing these days and and you know the fact that it's also possible to extract it from sediments in sites now you don't even need a fossil um you can't you always you know you can't get the same amount of, of detail but you can say oh well there are other neanderthals in this site um in these layers because we're finding in the sediment we just don't actually have the bone um so that's really really interesting as well that we can do that now we're we're, we're, we're at the half hour point now and, and i don't know if you're okay with going any further or not that's completely up to you i don't want to take any more time out of your yeah, schedule yeah i can i can do a bit it's cool good good uh now the one thing that i, I have read early on in the book and I, I felt uh you know i felt myself grow bigger whenever i learned what actually where the word neanderthal came from uh uh-huh. you want to touch that because like i said it made me i'm like yeah now i know you know i can, I can express <laughs> my knowledge to someone else because i know where that word came from <laughs> yeah it's it's one of these weird historical facts that i'm talking about earlier that are just sort of strange and you think really is that true but it is um so the the place where we first recognized neanderthals um is in germany um and it was a cave uh, called the Kleiner Feldhofer, which is like little little Feldhofer cave, and that was a cave in this uh, very large, well-known gorge, beautiful limestone gorge. It was um, 
it was actually like a tourist hotspot because it was so pretty with all these lovely formations and um, the river uh, running through it. Um, and the during the 1600s even, um, you know, people would visit there and, and go to sort of be inspired by the beauty of nature. And one of the people who enjoyed visiting there was um, a guy called uh, Joachim Neander, who was a composer. Um, he was he was religious um, and he wrote you know hymns and things like this um, and they are still very celebrated today some of his hymns um, but he was very well known and it was known that he liked the the area and so by the 19th century the valley itself had become known as the Neanderthal named after him so Tal is just the German for valley um, and but sort of during the early 19th century um, as you know, there was massive industrial development, um, huge sort of infrastructure growth, and there was a big um, sort of call for marble and limestone all over um, Europe. Um, and so massive amounts of quarrying were going on. And this was the reason why in the 1850s and 1856, um, the Feldhofer cave was being quarried out. And the, the Neanderthal bones from there it was a skull cap and some of the body, uh, the bones from the lower body, they were in the clay inside this cave and they were blasted out by black powder. And it was recognized by some of the quarry workers that they were not animal bones, they looked like human bones. And sort of, they contacted the, a local school teacher who was involved with the, with the, the local natural history society. And that's how that kind of discovery got recognized. There had been a couple of earlier finds of Neanderthal bones, but they weren't recognized. So that was in the Neanderthal, in the Feldhofer cave. But the weird thing is that this guy that it was named after, Joachim Neander, his uh, family name was originally Neumann. Um, and uh, as a, just a trend, people were classicizing their names. So they were changing it from the German to like the, the Roman or Greek. Um, so they changed it to Neander. And both Neumann and Neander mean new man. So that valley is the valley of the new man, which is where the first ever hominin, another member of our homo genus was recognized. So like you cannot come up with anything m more appropriate and serendipitous than that. It's just incredible. I'm, I'm smiling ear to ear because it's, it is just a fantastic story to, to, it is. to hear and, <laughs> and understand and know that, you know, again, the nuance between the new moon and Neanderthal, and uh, it's just, it's amazing. And it's, that uh, it, it, it teaches everyone a lot about where, you know, again, almost everything started basically, you know, with Neanderthal, which, you know, that everyone's familiar with. So. Yeah. And I mean, they could have been called something else. That's the funny thing, because as I said, there were these earlier sites. There was one from Gibraltar and, um, people that was found in 1848 but it wasn't recognized as a neanderthal till after this german find and um it this uh, skull was brought over to britain um and people were saying oh should we call it um you know homo calpicus which was this other name for gibraltar um and uh, but somebody pipped them to the post and um, there was a, a specialist a sort of a geologist and paleontologist 
um, who was uh, called William King, and he actually decided uh, to put out, a, a, gave a paper in 1863, that same year, and then it was published the next year in 1864, where he gave the name Homo Neanderthalensis to the German find. And because the scientific rules say whoever publishes the name first, they get, <laughs> that's the name that sticks. So that's why it was called that. Amazing all that works in the background that you just don't understand. So it's for, again, approaching it from a grade school level, uh, just, I guess, the stereotypical, uh, well, I, I guess you can, everyone refers to him as cave man, cave woman. Were there ever a time, was there ever a time that Neanderthals Neanderthals and dinosaurs existed together. Dinosaurs meaning the Tyrannosaurus Rex and the, uh, <laughs> you know, I know woolly mammoths, obviously they, they, you know, that was. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, dinosaurs are like vastly older, vastly older than Neanderthals. So, um, the first primates, I think, um, sort of emerged not long after dinosaurs, but they, you know, what, what turned into apes, even not even hominins just other apes that you know the kind of things that think of like a, a baboon you know um mostly doing things on four legs quite active in the trees but also you know got very inquisitive fingers quite clever really you know for animals um they're emerging um way 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 after the dinosaurs um dinosaurs except for the birds um as you know most people know become extinct around 65 million years ago and there's different ideas as to why that is but as a group the dinosaurs you know basically left the stage at that point except for birds um, and they then you know radiated and birds became very successful but um <clears throat> the world of the dinosaurs was very different um and it took a long 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 time you know tens of millions of years later until we start to see the emergence of apes and monkeys that look recognizably like apes and monkeys today. Um, and at that point, things were rather warmer than today. Um, and there was forests, warm forests um, over a lot of land, certainly in Europe. Um, but even then, you know, that's like 20 million years ago. And as I said before, our earliest ancestor with chimpanzees is not until about 7 million years ago. So like the expand of, of, of time between the last of the, the non-bird dinosaurs and Neanderthals is immense. They've got nothing to do with each other. You know, there's no way that, that they sort of occupied the same, the same ground um, at all. Um, the, the kind of creatures that Neanderthals knew um, do include extinct species, as you said, um, woolly mammoths, woolly rhinos but also um other animals that live during warm times because neanderthals did live during what is often called the ice age but actually that is a long period of time going back to about 1.8 million years when in fact it's multiple cycles of climate change going from glacial periods so cold periods when the ice caps come down um and then periods of time when it warms up again and it's basically like today or slightly warmer than today um, and so over that period of time you're going to get very different animals um, in those different environments so Neanderthals were living through multiple multiple phases of these changing climates so they were 
um, at home on you know the steppe tundra with woolly rhinos with um, reindeer but they were also equally at home in you know oak and beech forests with fallow deer and beavers and hippos um, because these warm environment animals would sort of over very slow you know long geological sort of scale movements they were sort of coming into Eurasia and then leaving again according to these climate changes but certainly um, the biggest animals Neanderthals encountered were not woolly mammoths because they were actually not that large only about as big as Asian elephants um, it would be the forest elephants from these warm periods that Neanderthals lived in um, and they were bigger um, straight tusked elephants they are known as and they definitely were bigger than living elephants so that was like the biggest megafauna that they knew um, rather than sort of dinosaurs Gotcha. Yes. Yeah, like I said, you know, one of those, uh, I guess it would be interesting to f trace that stereotype back. You know, why was it ever, you know, why was it ever uh, brought into the limelight? You know, that they, they killed dinosaurs or were chased or eaten by dinosaurs. <laughs> and, you know, you also get the one where, you know, they were only, which I, I actually got not correct I guess correct because I, I call it my my cave dweller community just to mm. just to kind of you know I don't know just to, to spark the, the brain to think about you know the stereotype that we all have of Neanderthals but sure. I got corrected with that you know saying well there's like cave dwellers you know they, they actually did live in houses and everything and, and not not houses but I mean uh, like tusk with fur yeah you know actual buildings not caves um but it, it would be interesting to trace the origin of those stereotypes back, you know, like I said, where, you know, everyone thinks that they were just uh, cold weather or whatever it might be. Yeah, you know? I think certainly the cold weather thing is because when they were first found, most of the material was coming from cave sites. And in general, the warmer period deposits tend not to be as well preserved because after the warm phases, ice comes down and trashes everything again or you have like massive frost action and stuff during these colder periods so um, you need quite particular conditions for um, you know soils and sediments from what we call interglacials these warmer climate phases to actually be preserved and quite often it's not happening in caves or the stuff is there but then it gets like washed out by a flood or something so it's not as common so we know that Neanderthals were definitely living in these full forested environments but the actual deposits are not that common um so that they're especially precious when we do find them um, and at, during the early period i think it was you know so striking that they seem to be always found with you know reindeer and, and cold things that i think that kind of idea built up um, but also you know i think it, it is to do with how they're found um, and the material they were associated with early on but i think you know the thing with the dinosaurs is you know there's that one million years bc film i think it's just people like the idea because it's fun you know that's that's why that kind of i think has stuck around that you know oh, wouldn't it be cool to 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 have had people actually seeing dinosaurs but unfortunately we didn't <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it's funny it, it is the and again me, me getting into it and learning 
the stereotype because I had them all. I mean, I, mm. I always thought they ran around with dinosaurs. I always yeah, thought yeah, they yeah. lived in caves, you know, and, and, uh, you know, well, the caves thing is definitely true. I mean, you know, caves are a real resource. If you're living in a landscape that is populated by massive amounts of really scary creatures, like, you know, people see hyenas in wildlife documentaries and stuff, but if you live with hyenas, they are frightening. Um, you know, they are very clever and they have incredible strength and um, you don't want to mess with hyenas so there are hyenas in um eurasia during the time but you've also got cave lion um you've got bear you have probably um there's good evidence now that there were also scimitar tooth cats which are basically like a kind of saber-toothed cat they're around as well um so being able to have a cave a nice wall behind you makes a lot of sense um so it's certainly they did live um in caves but yeah they they did live out in the open air as well for sure um we don't really have great evidence that they had built like structures houses um there's only really one site from france that suggests that they were building um sort of i guess shelters outside this is, i mean it's a really cool site it's incredibly rare to have um, really fine grained sediment um, preservation in the open area just out in the landscape and the reason this happened is because it's right next to a river which flooded with this you know this very clay rich sediment which is really fine grained like tal you know like talcum fine sediment that mud and that covered over this landscape where Neanderthals had been living and it basically showed that there was a rough circle about 10 meters across quite big of what looked very much like little post holes with little sort of piles of stones around them and based on a lot of really cool research um which implies that there's uh, some sort of preserved um woody remains in those holes it does look as, as if they had some kind of posts in there and it was probably a shelter maybe with skins between those wooden posts and even more we can see inside that the different areas of what they were doing in this shelter you know there's like a little area where somebody was napping making their stone tools then there was another little area where there was a hearth then at the back opposite this gap in between the post holes which presumably was the entrance right opposite that at the back there seems to be an area where they're not really doing stone tool working but there's loads of um sort of preserved bits of plant as if it's like a bed so that is like a real rare snapshot glimpse into what neanderthals were probably doing most of the time in the open landscape we just don't see that preserved you know we find their stone tools all over the place because they don't rot um, and you know they can be washed in a river and it doesn't matter but to find sort of a land surface preserved like that is extremely unusual and the, 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 one of the good things I, I think about that as well is um you know now that they found that sort of structure that area that kind of opens the door for them to look even more for those signs elsewhere as well so that may lead to more discoveries now that they know what they're looking for yeah yeah i mean it's it does come down to chance that site was actually found it's part of what's known as commercial archaeology rather than research archaeology so if you do research archaeology you'll tend to be based at university or you know a particular um sort of body of archaeologists and you'd be like right i want to know this i'm going to go out and look for it whereas commercial archaeology is a response to building development basically so that site in france um happened because there was a redevelopment on a building site next to this river 
um, and they would you know the we have the legal structures here same as you do in the states where if somebody wants to do massive building work then they need to have an archaeological assessment done first to see if there's anything there that's going to get destroyed um, and that's why that was found it was completely by chance well let's hope they come across those chances more often <laughs> yeah definitely now, so then I guess to t get back a little bit to the book, um, well, not that we got away from the book because all this information is in the book, but you, you mentioned a lot in there, Shannondale 1 and LF1. Yes, um, different individuals. Now, what, what uh, okay, so, Shan so those refer to individuals, not, because I, I guess I've been reading other information where you know like lf1 might refer to a certain level of sediment or you know depth of sediment or something like that so those two actually refer to yeah when i'm talking in the book um i try to avoid like some of the abbreviations and stuff so um because you know it gets a bit a bit much <laughs> um but uh shanidar is a site in um iraqi kurdistan and it's a big massive cave um and there are at least, I think it's 10 or 11 Neanderthals from there now. Um, and some of those were excavated in the 60s. Um, and there's some new one just been found. Um, but they are known as Shanidar 1, Shanidar 2. This is what we do, this is what we do when we have, you know, um, fossils uh, from a site. You basically usually give it the site name with a number. Um, but you can shorten it to like S1 or whatever. Okay. Um, and so for LF1, that is a male Neanderthal from the French site uh, La Ferrassie, uh, which was one of the first Neanderthals found in France. That was uh, 1908, I think that was found. And that's quite a complete um, skeleton, that one. I'm glad they abbreviated that one because I would never be able to, to pronounce that. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to have to keep typing that one. So I did I did use the abbreviation for that. <laughs> now with that, the, the Shannondale one, it, it, you, you had mentioned something in there about a lot of uh, uh, bod bodily deformations, like the, 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 the bones or structures were uh, so somewhat deformed. Was that, is that suggesting something wrong with the... Uh, the skeleton or is that just something from uh, outside pressures or whatever deforming them um no no um certainly i mean whenever you dig up a um any kind of skeletal remains in a site um there is some potential for especially if, if it's very deeply buried for um the pressure of the sediment to sort of slightly warp the bones um but most of the time because we actually have so many Neanderthal remains from many different sites, you've know, got thousands of bones, um, we can see which bits are not looking quite right um, and we can correct for that. So um, we know when that's happening, it's, it's easy to see it. Um, and there is some really cool, you know, like work that can be done now. You can sort of scan everything in 3D, um, all the little fragments of a skull. And if you think it's not looking you know quite as it should do because it's been a bit warped you can sort of take them apart digitally and then put them back together and, and play around with it until the warping has gone um, so that's one thing but this particular individual uh, Shanidar one um, was uh, quite an old Neanderthal he was um, certainly well over 40 probably in his 50s um, and he had just suffered a, a real catalogue of sort of injuries and and um yeah just been very unlucky in his life he had some 
uh, initial very serious um, injury that probably potentially a rock fall, something like that, or something enormous, basically, that sort of crushed half the left side of his face, um, probably left him at least partially sighted, if not blind, in one eye. Um, perhaps did something um, with his hearing, um, but also um, his left arm is really withered, and it's only his upper arm, basically, it's um, just his, his lower arm, appears to have been uh, amputated, um, whether that is something that there was a terrible, I mean, he must have had a terrible injury and then could not use that arm, which is why it then withered. So this is something that happened quite early in his life. Um, but whether that amputation was sort of a, something that happened during whatever this awful incident was, presumably it's the same thing that messed his face up, um, or whether somebody actually cut that off, um, perhaps because it was so mangled, um, his hand and everything they couldn't save it um we don't we can't really tell but certainly it healed and he lived his life and carried on um, he had a limp probably um again partly to do with this terrible injury um but he got old enough and survived long enough that he actually developed um arthritis you know just old age arthritis um and also for a lot of neanderthals they do get arthritis a little bit younger than um many westerners do and that's basically just because of the intensity of their lives they had very hard lives anyway um but so yeah he he experienced this dreadful um injury and it left him with you know a really challenging um situation in life but it was he was able to survive um presumably he probably was not able to hunt um large game to take part in you know very active difficult um sort of hunting um but he probably was still able to um contribute by uh, hunting smaller game because we know neanderthals did hunt small game um collecting uh food um other kinds of food plant food things like this um and maybe you know maybe he even was able to adapt his his napping technique and, and carry on making tools uh using the stump we, we can't tell but certainly he must have been provisioned with some food by the other members of the group if he wasn't able to partake in you know the 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 main sort of hunting that was going on so um there was some level of care there but in terms of the rest of um his injuries and whether he was looked after or not it's hard to say with him so now would that discovery would that have been maybe one of the first well maybe one of the first discoveries that changed the dialogue again another stereotype where you know if you weren't able to contribute you were just left left alone and left to die so that obviously uh sheds a different light on the compassion and the care and everything correct yeah he was important he was found in the 1960s but um there was another find from the earlier 20th century that was found um almost the same time as uh, lf1 this la Ferrisi, uh neanderthal and it's another french one and um, this one was called uh the old man because uh, he was old um from la chapelle au son so this is another french site from the south of france um, and this was uh, a Neanderthal who was, again, quite complete, actually. Um, and there have been 
debates ongoing as to how this complete body ended up in what appeared to be some kind of pit or depression in this cave. Um, and more recent researchers have gone back and sort of argued that yes, there was some kind of pit and potentially it was sort of enhanced by Neanderthals, maybe even if they didn't sort of uh, dig the whole thing out. But that's a whole other argument. But he's interesting because he was found at the beginning of the 20th century and he was very old, um, clearly old, and he had also lost quite a number of teeth um, and had like a, a dental abscess and things like this. So he was one of the early ones as well, where people said, mm, you know, how likely is it that an individual who is old, who's suffering from bad teeth, you know, is it possible that they could just support themselves without a complicated argument? Because you need to look at what happens in hunting and gathering cultures. Um, and actually a lot of the, the injuries we see in Neanderthals um, doesn't mean that they were especially violent to each other at all. It looks more like they just had hard lives, as we see in hunter-gatherers. A lot of the time, um, you know, in, in depending on which society you look at with hunter-gathering peoples, a lot of them can be injured or ill at any one time, just because life is really difficult. If you're constantly having to go out and just get everything you need yourself all the time, um, you're opening yourself up to a lot of injuries um, and illnesses. Um, so there's that going on. But in terms of sort of the argument about whether they looked after or not, um, some people focused on the teeth and said, well, you know, if he couldn't sort of chew his own food, did that mean other people were providing the food and preparing it? Um, but if you look at chimpanzees, it's quite interesting. Um, chimps will actually live to quite a ripe old age, um, you know, 50, um, I think maybe even 60, I'm not sure, but I mean, it's not common, but they do live quite, quite, um, a long time and in some of them they live long enough that they lose their teeth um but they will carry on eating um and they are not you know looked after and provided with loads of food by other members in the group it doesn't work that way they just sort of you know carry on and, and do the best they can so the lack of teeth in itself is not really a strong argument that this particular neanderthal la chapelle au son uh, old man that he was definitely looked after and provided with food with that the the, the old man and, and i don't know if you mentioned that or not did they determine the age of the old man or um i think he's um 50 plus oh okay wow very good and again another stereotype where it's like oh they probably didn't live past you know 30 <laughs> if that yeah you know? <laughs> i mean it's complicated because we do find a lot of um bones from what are clearly prime aged adults you know like 20s 30s 40s um, and on that basis people said well does this mean that neanderthals died young you know where were they all dying young the problem is is that we don't know if the bones that we find are like a mirror of the actual age structure in the living population. If you, if you know that that's true, then yes, it does appear that they were dropping dead in the prime of their life, which is not great for, you know, future <laughs> generations. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but if we, if we know that um, actually there is some involvement in which bodies end up preserved. And if, as we now believe Neanderthals were, doing things with the bodies of the dead they were probably in some cases um placing entire bodies um in in caves in a way that they are protected we can't sort of most of the time say that they're actually being buried because that 
tends people tend to think oh it's like a nicely cut grave and it's not quite as as obvious as that but there's something going on with whole bodies but also we now see that they are um taking bodies apart as well um and overall personally i don't think the um arguments that taking bodies apart and in some cases certainly eating them is actually about starvation i don't think it's to do with that i think it's more like what we see again in um in some human cultures today and also in uh chimpanzees and bonobos that there is an interest in the bodies of the dead as a means of processing like the massive trauma that happens when somebody dies in the group because their groups are super close-knit um just as just as human groups are and chimpanzees will sit and touch and do stuff with the bodies um there is some eating that goes on as well um so we know that neanderthals are interested in the bodies of the dead and for that reason we can't trust that the fact that we see lots of young males is actually a reflection of who was dying at incredibly high rates um and and also if you look at the early homo sapiens record it doesn't look that different um, so if we're going to argue that neanderthals were all dying really young well the same was going on with early homo sapiens people and it's just it's just amazing i could i rebecca i could sit here for hours and talk to you and i don't, <laughs> <laughs> I don't obviously we're not going to do that <laughs> but, but i mean a lot of the, pretty much everything we've talked about is in your book kindred neanderthal life love death and art i mean from what i've read and you know the the questions that i formulated for it are basically pulled from the book so mm -hmm. uh you do have a lot of information in there um so just a couple wrap-up questions for you um sure. yes throughout your life and career who were your maybe in your early life who was one of your major influencers that kind of got you into uh you know the, the neanderthal path i guess you can say oh gosh um Apart from, I already mentioned Jean Owl's book, so I read her books when I was about 14. But I think probably I also have my parents to thank because we, you know, we were very lucky. Um, we used to go on holidays to the continent, to France and Spain um, when I was young, and they would take me to museums because uh, my parents are interested in history as well. And so I have definite memories of, you know, being, I don't know, sort of 13 or 14 and going into prehistory museums um i think maybe one of them was a museum at altamira in spain which is actually like one of you know the um the painted decorated cave so it's after neanderthals but i'm pretty sure i remember watching a video of somebody making stone tools and just being like absolutely entranced by that video and just like wow this is amazing this is how it works and just the flow of the movement and sort of how the flakes just come off so beautifully yeah i think i think it's that it's part of my childhood of, of sort of visiting lots of historical sites and museums definitely fantastic yeah I, you, you keep mentioning but i was going to ask you uh you know why you dedicated a whole chapter to tool making but then as we spoke you, you, you kind of told me that that was you know a lot of what got you into it and uh i had actually spoke with i interviewed a, a gentleman named joe lawler he uh he still creates the primitive weapons the primitive style you know the flint oh, yeah, mapping and cool. everything so yeah it's it's pretty awesome uh, so then that was early life. How about, uh, how about now? Anyone, any, any major influencers right now? Oh gosh. I mean, I could not have written this book without hundreds of colleagues, you know, the work that 
so many people do all the time incredibly meticulous work um you know whether it's analyzing skeletons or stone tools like i do or the dating side you know there's so many so many colleagues i, I name some of them in the acknowledgements um but you know there's so many other people that the, whose work i i drew on um that that i you know i didn't have pages and pages to 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 uh, list everybody's names but um yeah i would definitely say that it's it's the work done by my colleagues that is so inspiring um and often it's you know some archaeologists are so privileged to excavate this material to handle it to touch it to look at it to study it um and although day to day when you're when you've got a project and you're trying to analyze like 10,000 pieces of stone it can get quite wearying um but you only have to remember how lucky you are to to look at that material and you know all of all of my colleagues have that same um passion i think um and i feel very lucky to have been able to write this book and bring together all of the absolutely fascinating stuff that doesn't even make it into the headlines because it's in all of the academic journals and stuff that you know it's difficult to read those kind of things but if you're not trained in it um and that's what i really wanted to communicate to people is all this incredible you know decades of of fascinating stuff that that shows us so much about what neanderthals were like and what their lives were like um that doesn't really make it out of the academic conferences <laughs> and that's what i wanted to share well, I definitely appreciate you bringing that out. But uh, yeah, like you had mentioned, you know, how exciting it is uh, to to discover fossils or whatever it is. I know with me, at least in this area that I've only be, been able to discover, because I love looking for fossils as well, mm -hmm. is um, mine is mostly plant life in this area. But my goodness, if I, and I still get excited whenever I find those, you know. If I oh, was yeah, to, I would. <laughs> yeah. If I was, man, if I ever came across even a, a dinosaur bone, Neanderthal bone, I don't know what I would do. I'd probably, I'd probably drop it with from a heart attack i'd be so excited you know? <laughs> yeah <laughs> so i definitely understand the draw to it uh, yeah. it's, it's very exciting um one other thing too well a couple other things what what books or uh, media are you ingesting these days like what 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 keeps oh, your mind um, up when you're not you know discovering the, fossils <laughs> i have i've really enjoyed the the, the book that i've just about to finish that i've really enjoyed and um, i guess listeners might like it because it's historical and um, really amazing book about the vikings um it's called the children of ash and elm um it's by neil price um and i, I know it's uh, it's available in the states it's a fantastic book it's um he's an archaeologist so it is a history of the vikings but it's it's actually kind of like kindred in that he just draws on masses of archaeology um, really cool, incredible, weird stuff um, to kind of flesh out the world of the Vikings and how they thought. Um, and, you know, not just kind of the sagas, the, the, the Viking sagas and the history, but also, you know, just what was the material reality of their lives. So I've really enjoyed that. And you, you said that the name of that again was The Children? It's called uh, The Children of Ash and Elm, Ash A History of the Vikings. Elm. Okay, mm -hmm. very good. You know, definitely uh, 
probably pull up a link and I can link that in the show notes. Speaking of links, I'll actually send you an email or, or if you, if you have time, send me an email to, uh, you know, with all the links that you have where everyone can get in touch with you or, uh, you know, discover Basically, your work. Yeah. And your books it's and just it. my website, um, which is Rebecca and, uh, Twitter. Um, I'm on there as at, uh, DA. Awesome, man. I know I was on your, uh, your, your website <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it is, it's fantastic. Uh, just so much information there. I, I, I greatly appreciate. The, you know, I should the, say that the references for the book are on there as well. So if listeners want to track that them down, because I, I chose not to include like references or citations or a bibliography in this book, because I didn't want it to overwhelm people because it would have been, you know, hundreds of more hundreds pages. Hundreds of pages, terrible, absolutely, yeah. sure. <laughs> um, so I've put that all online, um, which is linked from my website. Um, I It's not organised by chapter yet, which I really should do, because um, it would make it a bit easier for people. But um, but yeah, so the where I source stuff from is, is all on there, if people want to have a look at that. Absolutely. I'm sure they will. <laughs> Definitely. I, and I, I, you know, again, I keep going back to it too, whenever I want to learn any more things about Neanderthals or what have you. But uh, now, is there anything that we did not discuss or anything that you would like to touch on that we may have, that I may have failed to, to no. try and pull out of you? <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think so. No, it's been great. Awesome. Uh, do you oh, have actually, a, actually, ahead, no, I ahead. will say something. Um, <laughs> The book is currently out of stock pretty much everywhere in the States. Um, wow, okay. That's awesome, it, right? Well, uh, in a sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, we there was a reprint um, done, um, but there was a massive problem at the printers. I think there was a fire. Um, so oh, everything that wow. should have been back in stock like two weeks ago isn't. Um, but basically, if people do want to order it, they can pre-order at, you know, at their local independent bookseller would be great other places amazon or whatever um if you order it it will come um it's just going to be early january um rather than when it should have been available which was now so that's why it says it's out of stock everywhere because there was a reprint and then <laughs> presumably they went up in smoke so oh, um, they had to do goodness. it again um <laughs> so yes if you, if you let people know that that would be great <laughs> and i think that has a lot to, to do with you as well i know you've been knocking out a lot of interviews in regards to the book uh, it just it just came out correct like um last month or a month before it came that? out in the states at the end of october, october. Um, and it was released in in the uk in uh, august so there was uh, two like staged releases okay, okay but it'll be out in paperback next august very good uh let's see okay well with that the only other question i usually ask is uh you know and, and it's something you can you know if you don't or i'll send you an email and you can respond to it about you know anyone you would think would would like to come on the uh, neanderthal oh, okay podcast. yeah yeah i'll um send me an email and yep. i'll reply to that yeah i will do that well, with, with that, Rebecca, man, I, I appreciate, like I said, your book was awesome. Kindred, Neanderthal Life, Love, Death, and Art. It, it is just, it's fantastic. And I hope you hope you sh really think about maybe writing some fictional books as well. Uh, yeah, well, I have an idea for book two. It's not oh, fiction, but it's more awesome. human origins. So, yes, I'm, I'm going to go <laughs> go deeper and bigger. <laughs> Well, again, thank you so much, Rebecca, for, for sitting down with me and for, you know, uh, 
agreeing to go past the half hour. Sometimes you just can't cover anything, everything in a half hour. Yeah, it's, it's just, hard. It, there's no just problem. so much. Like I said, I could sit here for hours asking you questions. <laughs> so <laughs> I appreciate the time that you did give to me. And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, thank you very much. And uh, No problem. Thank yeah, you for having uh, me. Like I said, whenever you have your next book coming out, feel free to, to, to have your publishers reach out to I me will. or you reach I out will. to me and yeah, we'll get you on again to get that promoted. And you Super. Know, yeah, hopefully that by that time I have more than a couple hundred, <laughs> which I mean, a couple hundred is pretty good for a couple months, you know, a couple hundred yeah. followers of the podcast. So That's I'm happy very with good. that. <laughs> certainly, certainly. But, uh, yeah, no, thank you very much and uh, enjoy the rest of your weekend. I appreciate it, Rebecca. Yeah, you too. You too. Bye-bye. I know. Bye. And there you have it, cave dwellers. Absolutely amazing and highly informative conversation with Rebecca Rag Sykes. I know without a doubt you took away some fantastic and awesome content from that conversation. And remember, there is a rewind button for you to go back so you can jot down all of that knowledge Rebecca so graciously shared with the community. I would like to once again thank Rebecca for giving up her precious time to hang with the Cave Dweller community. So make sure you support her by visiting her homepage and buying her book, Kindred, Neanderthal Life, Love, Death, and Art. Amazing is all I can think of. So, cave dwellers, don't forget, join me next week. I'm going to take a shot at going solo next episode, and possibly a few after that. I'm going to try and do a series of episodes where I recap all of my previous conversations with the awesome guests I had the utmost privilege to sit down with. I hope to also go into more detail about the subject matter I covered with all of them. I'll start with the first episode with Joe Lawler and work my way through to Rebecca Rag Sykes' conversation. So, I hope to not disappoint you. And again, cave dwellers, I would love to hear from you about how you feel the podcast is going. Is it what you were expecting? Are there things I can do differently to make this any better? If I don't hear from you, I can only assume that I'm giving you what you want from the Neanderthal mind. I will take all criticism that you give and try to mold the show to your liking. But I can't promise I'll be able to do everything everyone wants me to do. So please, email the show at theneanderthalmind at gmail.com and go to the website theneanderthalmind.com and leave me some messages. And don't forget to check out Dr. Rebecca Rag Sykes' homepage and social media links to follow all Rebecca does and plans to do. Until next time, cave dwellers. Thanks for listening to the Neanderthal Mind podcast. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. If you love what you heard, subscribe, rate, and review the Neanderthal Mind podcast wherever you download your podcasts. If you know anyone that you think would enjoy this podcast, please recommend the Neanderthal Mind to them. Until next week, my fellow cave dwellers, don't forget to leave your cave drawings and comments on our wall at theneanderthalmind.com.